Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. When I got a call from the Secret Service, every crime I'd ever committed flashed before my eyes. It was a rather short flashback sequence, given that I'm pretty sure I've never committed any crimes. Still, I thought my time was up. When I first started looking into cybercrime, I knew I'd be talking to a lot of cybersecurity experts, law enforcement officers, and policymakers. I did not expect to get any phone calls from the people who take a bullet for the president. But if you're trying to set up an interview with Brent Harlan and Alan Davis, you'll probably get a ring from the agency. That's a very complex world of the cyber criminals engaging in illicit activity, these non-government actors doing foreign intelligence. Privacy and anonymity are not bad. Funds transfers. Because, well, drugs. We've observed more and more threat actors. The major players behind the darknet markets. Welcome back to Politicotech. I'm your host, Mohar Chatterjee. Today, I'm looking at the top-down cross-jurisdictional information sharing model that is American law enforcement. Whew. Okay. But how does that actually work? To figure that out, we talked to Brent Harlan, the special agent in charge of the National Computer Forensics Institute, NCFI for simplicity. He was joined by Alan Davis, the special agent in charge of the course curriculum at NCFI. Through a strange set of circumstances, the NCFI is run by the United States Secret Service. Our agency was actually created first in 1865 as an investigative branch, uh, an arm of the Department of Treasury, uh, actually by President Abraham Lincoln, which was kind of ironic since uh, we were not a protection agency, but we were an investigative body of undercover agents that infiltrated counterfeit currency uh, rings after the Civil War. And that was, the, that was the beginning of the Secret Service. Right. So a wing of America's first investigative agencies is now responsible for training law enforcement all over the country in the tools that they need to combat crime in an increasingly digital world. And so we train personnel, law enforcement investigators, prosecutors and judges, state and local law enforcement from across the nation. We've trained over 21,000 personnel since inception of the program in 2008. They hail from all 50 states, five U.S. territories, and more than 2,500 agencies nationwide. If the NCFI sounds familiar, you've probably got a keen ear to the ground on what the 117th Congress has been up to. In late September of this year, the Senate unanimously passed bipartisan legislation to reauthorize the National Computer Forensics Institute. The NCFI Reauthorization Act was authored by Senator Chuck Grassley, a Republican from Iowa, and Senator Dianne Feinstein, a Democrat from California. The act basically meant that the Secret Service would be paying for the NCFI to function all the way through the fiscal year 2028. And what the NCFI does is provide training to state, local, tribal, and territorial law enforcement officers who might reasonably assist in the investigation and prevention of cyber and electronic crime and related threats. Which leads me to ask, what caused the NCFI to be born in 2008? 
that's the global financial collapse. There's a lot of stuff going on. And this is an institute that's funded off of, you know, congressional appropriations. What was the impetus for making the NCFI a thing? So originally, the state of Alabama, their Alabama District Attorneys Association and their Office of Prosecution Services, which is their network of district attorneys across all of their counties in the state, realized uh, this was the early 2000s, 2006, seven, somewhere around there, that technology was becoming a large part of criminal investigations, uh, whether it was something in a device, a digital evidence piece in a financial crime or a, a violent crime. They realized they didn't have the ability or the knowledge to process the digital evidence that was showing up in computers and network systems and hard drives. And then ultimately, as the nation evolved into everyone carries a handheld device on their person now. I mean, they're, they're carrying around a device that potentially stores information that could be evidence in a crime that was committed, whether they're a witness or a suspect. And uh, so the state of Alabama realized this, and they didn't have very many uh, entities or organizations they could go to for help. But they reached out to the Secret Service, knowing uh, our part uh, 10 years before had created a starting a network of well, at the time, we called electronic crime task forces. Now we refer to them as cyber fraud task forces. So if you hear the term CFTF, the Secret Service has a network of those task forces located in most major cities in the field offices across the nation for the Secret Service. And so knowing that element that we had as our agency, state of Alabama reached out and said, we'd like to know how could you train our personnel, our investigators, and our prosecutors, how could our prosecutors and judges understand what, what investigators are bringing to their, to their court? And so it started in one state, a conversation, but ultimately the response was, we'd be happy to, but we need to make this a nationwide effort for all of U.S. law enforcement. We can't just do this for one state. And so the uh, concept of the NCFI was born. And in 2008, they began classes and training for, I think, believe, Roughly around 250 people were trained that first year, a very small, a small cadre of, of students from across the nation. What are some of the emerging technologies that you're seeing cyber criminal collectives using right now to dodge law enforcement scrutiny? And I know you mentioned um, a lot of emerging tech is sort of flash in the pan, but I'm trying to sort of capture the big shifts that have forced you to take notice. I think for us, the biggest challenge is that we consistently see are related to uh, communication protocols, whether it be encryption or whether it be you know cloud storage or some of the other challenges that we've seen of late, um, and then encryption. Um, so those are kind of the recurring challenges we've seen. Obviously, don't want to provide a, a, a playbook for cyber criminals to thwart law enforcement investigations at this point in this interview. But what we've done is we've taken those challenges and we've brought it back to how can we provide elements that will assist, you know, to your point with the transnational cyber criminals, it's always going to cross over jurisdiction lines. Criminals don't really concern themselves with some of those um, finer points that as law enforcement and judicial systems have to. So if we're going to end up going through multiple jurisdictions, that kind of stuff, those are always challenges. And so what we do is we provide our graduates with the processes and the tools with the caveat that you're going to need to make sure that you take this this through your local jurisdiction and ensure that you're processing these artifacts, reporting these artifacts and testifying at the level and, and specific to the concerns that are in your jurisdictional control. So darknet marketplaces tend to use PGP encryption and 
uh, a lot of the newer platforms have mandated the use of privacy coins like Monero. And that's sort of in addition to the fact that you have platforms like Alphabay integrating mixers like into the platform itself. So knowing that cybercrime collectives are sort of improving upon their operational security standards, do we have any proper means of tracking a Monero transaction? Do we have any means of breaking a PGP encryption? Or is this something that's simply not worth the effort? So I think with time, everything is getting updated, you know, almost daily now. So I think a lot of the processes and the efficiency of the computer systems allow for um, the encryption piece to be broken. Now, that can be challenging, depending upon, you know, what type of encryption and the level of which or the number of keys and so forth. But there are processes that we teach here on how to kind of tip the scale in law enforcement's hand if they're trying to get into encrypted devices and so forth related to encrypted uh, communication and some of the other stuff. Um, again, there, there are some processes that we work through that can be very helpful related to the digital currency and tracing of digital currency. There are some processes. Monero has been challenged of late with some of the tracking compared to, you know, the more traditional Bitcoin or digital currency. You know, the, the altcoins are always a challenge, but this is not new. In early 2000s, I was working credit card skimming related to different types of processes and so forth. And so there's always a bit of a lag time between law enforcement and new processes and law enforcement catches up and then those change, um, you know. I'm just wondering if national security and cybersecurity have always been so intertwined as they are now. Is the NCFI at all affected by national security concerns or just is it just business as usual? Uh, I would never classify it as business as usual, but our focus is definitely because we get into the realm of cybersecurity, uh, national security. Those are definitely specific lanes that other entities drive in, if you will. And our focus here is to ensure that all of our nation's law enforcement, that we are focused on digital evidence, you know, whether it be from handheld device, a network system, uh, a computer or laptop um, in, in criminal investigation. So that's where I think sometimes the, the, the IDs, the ideas get crossed with what NCFI does. We, uh, we've definitely had a lot of focus, a lot of questions this last year on just what you're describing and, and what our methodology is here and, and how, our training of law enforcement may infringe on civil liberties. And and all of our training here is based on the rule of law and criminal procedure. There's Everything is taught from a perspective of this is no different than if you were an investigator in a burglary and you wanted to get inside of a, a residence or a vehicle, uh, you have to have a search warrant to go there. And so we have digital search warrants. That you've, the, that's the point of the prosecutors and judges coming here as well, to understand that piece. So when they do see a, a legal request to enter into a phone or a laptop or some other digital device to look for evidence that is very specific and it follows criminal procedure. So there's, we're not teaching any kind of investigative technology that does not follow those traditional procedures that, that you might see in a law enforcement investigation. At NCFI, Brent and Allen have been working on a cyber training model for some time now. The hope is that it will improve cross-jurisdictional law enforcement cooperation in the United States. 
It started in the late 90s with our New York Electronic Crimes Task Force, when we referred to it as ECTF. And after 9-11, mm-hmm. uh, then we built additional task forces, realizing the need for the force multiplication of multi-jurisdictional partnerships. That's the beauty of this training model. Uh, it all centers around the partnerships between state, local, tribal, territorial law enforcement officers and their Secret Service counterparts. We have in our Cyber Fraud Task Force, our CFTFs, all of our students uh, who come here are nominated through their partnerships with those respective field offices. But ultimately, the Cyber Fraud Task Force element is that different agencies partnering together, whether uh, they find themselves in a a multi-jurisdictional, multi-agency case immediately, or like they have a local resident that's been scammed, but it takes them outside their boundaries. That's the beauty of the Cyber Fraud Task Force. And we have those all across the nation, almost any major city you can think of where there's a Secret Service field office, there's a CFTF most likely attached to that office. And depending on the geographic location, you may have people every day in there, or you may have a, a spread out map of personnel with different subject matter expert technologies that they can respond and help drive the investigation forward. No one agency can do this alone. The digital evidence footprint in any investigation, whether it's a robbery in your neighborhood of a gas station or a transnational organized criminal group perpetrating networks of intrusion or taking information from networks, you need uh, partnerships. This is a good place to talk about the local investigations that Brent referenced right there. So I mentioned at the beginning of this series that I wrote my thesis on darknet marketplaces. I think it's time you knew a few more details about that. You've probably heard of fentanyl. That's one of the most well-known examples of synthetic opioids. Well, I was tracking synthetic opioid listings on the darknet and the regular internet and seeing how these posts were fluctuating due to international narcotics and export policies. Synthetic opioid overdoses in the U.S. have surged year over year since 2014. By 2016, overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids had outpaced both heroin and other prescription opioids. Among those fatalities was Tashara Burnside, a 25-year-old in Ames, Iowa, who overdosed in December of 2016. She ingested a synthetic opioid called U-47700, which was eventually traced to an online vendor, a Chinese company selling purported research chemicals. The lead investigator on that case was then-Iowa police detective Cole Hippen. He's a sergeant now. A person in Ames had purchased that substance from the internet I had it shipped in via a mail carrier service. I believe it was loose powder, pressed it into pills, and had begun selling some of those pills, in this case, to Tashara Burnside's girlfriend, before her, Tashara, and her girlfriend had used it a couple times and eventually used it, and it became a lethal amount and resulted in the death of Tashara. That case ended, if I remember correctly, with essentially just arresting the dealer who bought stuff off of the internet. It wasn't really possible to pursue that case any further to the actual supplier, was it? It was not. Was that frustrating? Yeah, I think the frustration is that we want to see justice for victims. We, of course, see the end impacts of a variety of crimes, drugs, drug overdoses, 
either personal crimes, financial crimes, et cetera. And obviously, I think most of us that do this, do this, and, and we certainly take some satisfaction out of pursuing justice on behalf of the family members, the people whose lives are impacted by these crimes. And when you're really not able to reach out and physically get to the source of that's causing so many issues that you can see the end result in the community, that is frustrating. And it's not just drugs. There are other cybercrimes whose jurisdictional issues have complicated Sergeant Hippen's investigative process. We certainly had several cases within the past several years that do involve specifically the dark web. I'll share a, a case. It's, it's a fairly good example of just how the world connectivity can affect us uh, in a physical way. This is probably in 2017 or 18 as an investigator. We had a case with some cars that were fraudulently purchased from a dealer here in Ames. And these cars were fairly sought after, a very specific model of a Mercedes diesel car. And the dealers here obviously were given fraudulent funds. It was some sort of a check fraud, you know, and stolen identity of a legitimate person that looked legitimate for the purchase. And so I worked to trace where the cars had went. And obviously, you know, the goal of an investigation is usually to follow money, follow the physical items just because they can potentially be tracked. And ultimately tracked those cars to uh, the port of Wilmington, Delaware. So obviously several states away, the cars were loaded onto a container ship and were unloaded in a foreign country. I'd even gotten so far as to contact the port authorities on the United States domestic side who said, yes, if you would have been able to get here a couple weeks earlier, we probably could have intercepted them. But they're in a uh, now in a foreign country where we had virtually no ability to track them. So obviously an actor that originated nowhere near Ames and nowhere in the United States. And obviously, here's a couple of physical cars that were located in Ames. You know, that's a, an example of a physical good. But when you talk about money, obviously, that's so much easier to transfer. And, and clearly, in any given years, we have victims lose several hundred thousands of dollars to some sort of scam. And there's so many different types of scams. And that's frustrating because obviously the money's immediately leaving the Ames area. It's not like it's a bag of cash somewhere that's simply stolen. It's digital, it's large amounts, it's very quick. And there's a good chance that it's definitely leaving the city of Ames, leaving the state of Iowa, and in many cases, leaving the United States. It's a big world out there. And as interconnected as the global cybercriminal underground can be, Law enforcement units are not always similarly connected, and those intelligence gaps can really gum up an investigation. I think even as opposed to six years ago, digital communication services and social media has, even in the last six years, I mean, we had a lot of that stuff then, but it's certainly more prevalent in people's daily lives now. And certainly the platforms have diversified. There's so many more digital apps, a million ways to communicate, not just using your phone, but through different apps and media sources. And as you'd mentioned, I think with drugs, it certainly makes things harder to track. Uh, there's always a new, maybe more secure method of communicating. I think the one thing with drugs that distinguishes it maybe from other financial crimes is the fact that you always have a physical substance somewhere, just because obviously if the goal is to ingest a substance in the body, there's always has to be a physical component to that. But then again, on the financial transfer side could be all digital and scams. That's a very complex world of funds transfers. And it's certainly a difficult thing to track, especially as a local law enforcement officer, because those crimes are so multi-jurisdictional, they're interstate, they're international, and money can be transferred so quickly throughout the world now. 
uh, whether it's conventional money or crypto. It just adds a lot of complexity when it comes to investigating those types of crimes. So what does Sergeant Hippen's ideal world of intelligence sharing look like? In the perfect world, there would be this system of communication. I think I would envision it as, you know, we live in a digital world, obviously connected cyber task force type. Um, Not that those don't exist. I, I know that they do, but probably a greater emphasis on those informational clearinghouses, those ways of transferring, uh, almost maybe even referral, a referral type system where we would refer some of our cases. And those do exist, but obviously I think the future will hold probably a greater emphasis on forming those. The other challenge to that I'd follow up with is the court system is also very geographically based uh, across the United States. Most courts are designed around a physical person being held physically present and being held accountable for those crimes. And I think that's another huge challenge is how do you get to an individual for an accountability? Because obviously it is individuals that are committing these, but they're potentially part of larger criminal organizations or they're middlemen working for another person. How do you hold them accountable in a local court of law? Because it's impractical, obviously, to fly someone across many of the states or even nations to be held accountable, obviously. So uh, I think that's the additional challenge is the court system. I think we're just we're, we're definitely utilizing a system that was designed around crimes having to be committed physically. And uh, it's just not only hard from an investigative standpoint, but the entire criminal justice system probably really was never obviously designed to handle that kind of uh, long distance inter-jurisdictional crime. Next time, we're putting some puzzle pieces together. We'll be talking to some cybersecurity operatives and getting to the core of why America has become a prime target for the global cybercriminal underground. It's a very real threat. The important context here is that these are campaigns. These aren't isolated incidents. And so to affect operational technology or critical infrastructure, it typically requires some bespoke knowledge about that system. So subscribe wherever you're listening, and I'll meet you next time. I'm Mohar Chatterjee. Thanks for tuning in.